0: Rule number two, lessons learned in a combat hospital. You're listening to Reach MD, XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and joining me is Dr. Heidi Squire-Kraft. Dr. Kraft is Deputy Manager for the Navy's Combat and Operational Stress Control Program in San Diego, California. She is a clinical psychologist, and in 2004... She served more than seven months as the Navy's officer in charge of a combat stress platoon at a remote air base in western Iraq. She and her team were at that time responsible for the mental health care of thousands of Marines and sailors. Today we're going to talk about Dr. Kraft's 2007 memoir, Rule Number Two Lessons I Learned in a Combat Hospital. Heidi, thanks for being with us today. We appreciate it.
1: It's my pleasure.
0: Um, Maybe before we talk about your book, let's talk a little bit about uh, your psychology background and how you ended up from a sort of typical psychological training to Western Iraq.
1: (laughs) It is quite an interesting story. I did do typical psychological training. I trained at the School of Medicine at UC San Diego with every intention of specializing in behavioral medicine, and going on to work in cardiac or pulmonary rehab, transplant, that, that kind of a role. And at the time, as I was doing my training before I left for internship, I got a private pilot's license. I love to fly. And at the time, was also dating a person who was going through naval flight training to be a pilot in the Navy. When I got to internship, it was a good experience but also crazy, as most of your listeners know. And about halfway through, my boyfriend at the time told me, you know, the Navy has these things called flight psychologists. <laughs> and and it was just so intriguing. I I thought, you know, something so different, a real switch in the way I'd been thinking, but I was ready for a change in the middle of internship. Again as as your listeners know. So it ended up working out quite well. My dad is a retired naval officer, and I grew up in a Navy family. So in some ways, he sort of laughed the whole way to my commissioning. He knew it would happen. <laughs> um, it didn't happen the way it should have. I should have probably let the Navy pay for school, but it ended up being almost something that should have happened from the beginning. It, it felt like this was my plan all along, even though it wasn't. So I did seven years as a flight psychologist first, taking care of aviation squadrons and their mental health needs, and then switched over to my primary subspecialty was clinical. So Stopped flying when I had my babies and started just being a staff psychologist at a hospital. After which, of course, I was, the war began and I was promptly deployed to Iraq with the Marines.
0: All right. Now, the title of the book starts out Rule Number Two, which sort of begs the question what's Rule Number One and where did these rules come from?
1: Yes. Uh, I'm a huge MASH fan, grew up watching it, and uh, found sort of an amazing similarity between a war that probably happened 60 years ago now to some of the same things that we experienced as medical people out there. Despite our advanced technology and sort of amazing advances in a lot of things, we still kind of came back to that same basic MASH-like feeling. For instance, when the helicopters came over our heads at the hospital, we would all stop and watch them Mm -hmm. to see whether they turned to land at the hospital. Right. And if they did, we all ran. It was just like the beginning of the MASH,
0: right? Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: So, so some things just really remained the same. And about halfway through the deployment, it hit me that this deployment was a lot like one of my favorite episodes of MASH. It was in the first season, and Colonel Henry Blake tells Hawkeye that there are two rules of war. Rule number one is that young men die, and rule number two is that doctors can't change rule number one.
0: And uh, do you think you knew that before you left for Iraq?
1: Speaking only for myself... I had hoped that maybe that was different now. I had hoped that with our outstanding technologic advances that maybe we would not be in that same helpless role. And I think that the body armor we have now has made that rule change a little bit. We do end up with a lot of people surviving wounds that they wouldn't in previous conflicts. But there were still situations in which we could do nothing. American doctors who felt like they had everything at their disposal suddenly out in the field with nothing at their disposal could do nothing. I think I had gone in with blinders on, not knowing how much I would actually feel that helplessness.
0: You spent some years uh, taking care of aviators, and then now you're in Iraq at an airfield. I know some things were different there. I I recall a... uh, passage in your book where you talked about uh, writing a note that the session was uh, terminated because of incoming. So obviously a lot of things are different out there in Iraq than they were uh, on a ship or even working uh, stateside. What things did you find that were similar in, in doing your jobs and maybe some things that were horribly different?
1: The things that were similar had to do with the people. I think that we have in the military some very, very unique individuals that call themselves U.S. Marines. And they are different than anyone I will ever meet in my life. <laughs> mm-hmm. And as a group, they continue to define themselves in this sort of really quite remarkable way. Most of my flying time was with the Marines, so I had a lot of experience with them. And I married one, so mm-hmm. I had even different experience with them. I guess. The vast majority of our patients were Marines. And this continued to be this amazing experience that just kept surprising me as a clinician, despite this trauma, this loss, this fear, all the various things they were experiencing these guys still, to a person, begged to go back to their unit. Not one single person in over seven months asked me to make it so that they could go home. Hmm. Not one person. And I think that is a very unique characteristic of patients that a psychologist might see.
0: (laughs) And a lot different than in uh, civilian practice.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Gary Cohn, and I'm speaking with Dr. Heidi squire Kraft. We're talking about her memoir, Rule Number 2, Lessons I Learned in a Combat Hospital. I note that in your book that you had uh, several occasions, maybe even more, to deal with potentially suicidal patients. In a real hospital, in uh, stateside, there's certain things you can do. Obviously, you couldn't do that there. How would you handle that?
1: Well, I think the thing that's the same about out there and home is that the first thing you must do is stabilize them, of course. The key difference is that these people have weapons. Mm, (laughs) So if you get someone that's really going to deteriorate and is in a crisis and feels suicidal, and I did, as you mentioned, have a few, the very first thing on my mind was the weapon needs to be separate from the person. So sort of a more acute feeling of the idea of stability of a patient. Yeah. So the first thing is get them stable. We had a little room that we called our ward, and I say that very loosely. I had two psych techs. If I had a person on the quote-unquote ward, one of my guys stayed with them, so it was literally 24-hour watch until I could get a medevac to get the person home. Bottom line is, you can't be suicidal in a combat zone, so that was an immediate medevac back to the States.
0: Did you um, ever have any follow-up with patients that were medevaced out, or, or did you want to have that kind of follow-up?
1: You know, I really would love to know what happened to some of my guys, especially the ones I followed throughout the deployment, because I did have a couple of repeat patients that stayed with me. But no, there was absolutely no way to be able to follow them up. And and that's because we were very early on in the conflict, had very, very rudimentary ways of uh, documenting. It's much, much better now. They have computers that work, they have electricity that is consistent, and they are able to document patient records in a system that's able to transfer to the states. We had no such thing. We used small pencils and pieces of paper, and I have no idea what happened to those records. We tried to destroy them. So, no, there's been no follow-up. The good thing about the book is that it has led a few people to contact me, uh, which has been really fun, and they've told me what they're doing and how they're doing, and that's been a real joy for me to hear from a few of them.
0: Um, We talked about how you would handle an acute psychiatric disease. I assume you had to modify some of your standard techniques in all kinds of patients, uh, being where you were and when you were. Any other things you can share with us as as to how you might treat somebody different in Western Iraq uh, airfield as as opposed to here?
1: I think the most important thing was keeping them functional. Mm -hmm. So instead of the mindset of what's best for the patient, no matter what's best for the job, I found myself thinking, okay, what's best for the patient here is to be back with his people, with the people he can connect with and the people that understand him And it's not best, in most cases, to remove him from that in order for me to try to do some sort of in-depth thing. So I found myself being brief, giving them as many tools as I could as quickly as I could. The other thing was I never knew if they'd come back. They came, which was great. I was very busy. But then when they returned to their unit, who knew what mission would take them where? I Mm -hmm. may never see them again. So I had to get them, (laughs) I had to get cram as much into a session, give them as many tools and as many contingency plans as I could so that they knew what was next if the following happened. So I think it was more of a rushed feeling, kind of. I felt like I had very limited time with people, and I needed to make sure to give them as much bang for the buck as I could so that to keep them as functional as possible.
0: You shared earlier that uh, they all wanted to get back to their unit. Did they all not want to come see you in the first place?
1: Oh, absolutely. It was a rare person that came by himself. Most of the time it was because a buddy or a leader noticed that something was different or something was wrong and then they would recommend that the person came. The good news was, for whatever the reason, we had enough credibility, I guess maybe because we didn't medevac everybody, we kept them out there, we, we got enough credibility pretty quickly that we actually worked with people and did our best to keep them doing their jobs so that we got busier as the deployment went on, and I think that had to do with the Marines trusting us.
0: At that time as well as now, we have lots of vets coming home, a lot of them obviously with uh, some psychiatric disease. What's here for them in terms of uh, support, resources? uh, What about any words of advice to our physicians out there who are seeing vets or might see them?
1: Well, I think that there's a huge movement due to a large congressional plus-up in both the DOD and VA systems to really kind of revamp the way we're thinking about the invisible wounds of the war, which of course are the emotional trauma and the traumatic brain injury. So there's a huge push to really kind of plus up the number of clinicians in these various sites that see veterans, as well as to get them all trained so that they're thinking the same way about these injuries. What I would say is that it is on its way to being at the level it needs to be. There are really good efforts being made to get it to where it needs to be. We're still in the military system, we're still fighting the stigma of being able to come forward. For these treatments. So, these are people that, as you alluded to, they don't come to the mental health system very quickly or very easily. So, first we have to convince them that it's okay if you're not okay. This is a major push in all the services to try to get leaders at every level to realize it's okay for their people to go get this help, that it actually will help them stay functional. And then, once we get to that point, then we expect the patients to start coming in the doors, and that's already happening. So, the VA is reporting a lot more diagnosed cases of PTSD. Hopefully, that means that we're doing a better job of destigmatizing coming for help. So physicians that see them, I think, just need to feel comfortable with at what level that diagnostic criteria is met and at what level they refer to someone who actually is able to, to provide the evidence-based treatment for PTSD.
0: Tell us a little bit about the uh, Injured Marine Semper Fi Fund.
1: This is a charity that I have been very honored to work with, which will be receiving a percentage of the proceeds of the book, has already been receiving. This is a wonderful group of Marine wives who started this small little fund a couple of years ago and has grown into a wonderfully huge charity. They provide grants to the families of injured Marines and sailors to be able to travel with their service member to where he or she is receiving rehab and stay with them while they're going through that process. It's really fantastic. A lot of these people just do not have the money to make that happen. And right. so these are grants with no expectation of payback. They also do modifications to homes for wheelchairs. They, it's really quite something. So they, they are allowed to use the, the grant money for a variety of different things to, to make quality of life better for
0: these guys. My guest has been Dr. Heidi Squire-Kraft. We've been discussing her recent book, Rule Number 2, Lessons I Learned in a Combat Hospital. I'm Dr. Gary Cohn, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Thanks for listening.